This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. The Importance of Mental Health Care for Children Identifying as Transgender, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. I'm thrilled today to welcome back Rodrigo Hang Leitinen from the National Center for Transgender Equality. He was on the podcast last year and it's one of my favorite interviews of all time. But before we get to our recent conversation, let's find out what's happening in healthcare finance news. We'll be back in a moment with Nick Hutt and Sean Stack. This is Sean Stack, HFMA's Director of Perspectives and Analysis, and I'm excited to tell you about our new bi-monthly webinar series designed specifically for hospital executives. HFMA will provide timely updates on the latest national healthcare reimbursement, and revenue cycle regulations, policies, and trends. This series will equip you with the knowledge and insights you need to navigate the complex world of your healthcare business office. You can register now at hfma.org under webinars. What's up, everybody? This is Nick Hutt from HFMA's content team, along with Sean Stack from our policy team. We are talking about the possibility of just a massive funding cut to Medicaid disproportionate share hospitals. Stakeholders are counting on Congress to act by the end of the month because if they don't, Medicaid dis funding will be cut by $8 billion per year for the next four years, with the first year's cut beginning this October. There's a chance that by the time you hear this, Congress, at least the House, will have passed language to delay the cuts by a couple of years. It's really kind of something that almost has to happen for the sake of the industry, wouldn't you say, Sean? This topic has significant impacts on safety net hospitals because it really addresses those linkages for low-income patients, uninsured insufficient coverage, which is on the rise, I guess, so is uninsured for that matter. So we are watching HR 5378 very closely, and that's the bipartisan legislation that, you know, is out there to propose to delay the Medicaid dish cuts for two years, like you said, next. So yes, it's catastrophic cuts to safety net hospitals. Yeah, I think it's going to be down to the wire on this one. As many listeners may know, these cuts were first legislated in the Affordable Care Act as a way to pay for the increased insurance coverage that the ACA was implementing. But the coverage levels that were envisioned have not been realized. So hospitals are still providing levels of charity care and incurring levels of bad debt where a lot of them really still need these DISH payments. And by the way, when we say DISH, for anyone who doesn't know, that's the acronym for disproportionate share hospitals. Of course, the ongoing unwinding of Medicaid continuous enrollment provisions is impacting the Medicaid coverage rules. And there's also the fact that even for all the millions of people who have Medicaid, 
those payments are not enough, generally speaking, to cover hospitals' costs providing care. It's somewhere around 85% of costs, I think, maybe a little bit more. Right around 88 cents on the dollar, I think, is where we're at currently. Yep. 88, okay. Thank you. So it just further illustrates why these dish payments are so important. I agree. And, and you know, the, the, the disenrollments have kind of been catastrophic over the last several months with Medicaid, with the redeterminations. I mean, Kaiser's coming out with 73% of the disenrollments are at a procedural level, meaning most likely that they can't get a hold of the patients or the patients haven't filed their redetermination paperwork. So that is impacting safety net hospitals greatly. And then when you add on to the fact that if patients even are on Medicaid or if they are on exchange, the out-of-pocket costs, the insufficient coverage with a bronze plan these days for out-of-network is also catastrophic on this type of patient. So yeah, this is something that's very concerning. Yeah, it sure is. A lot of times we talk about the fact that hospitals are disappointed with some of the different payment provisions and government programs, whether the annual update for inpatient or outpatient payments. But this cut would just be on a different level in terms of impact on the affected hospitals. MACPAC, that's the uh, Medicaid and CHIP Payment and Access Commission, earlier this year estimated that the cut would amount to 54% of scheduled dish payments. That just seems almost untenable in terms of maintaining a thriving healthcare safety net. Anything to add, Sean? I think we've made the point that it's not optional, really, for sustainability of, of safety net hospitals. Oh, I agree, Nick. I mean, I think that folks need to continue to reach out to legislators, show support for the bipartisan legislation to not push the cuts through and, and, and make sure DISH gets continued for the foreseeable future the next two years. Absolutely. And, and one thing to add is, as if all this weren't enough, many of the same hospitals are being affected in the upcoming fiscal year by the big cut to Medicare uncompensated care payments, right around $950 million that we talked about a few episodes ago when we were discussing the FY24 inpatient payment final rule. So as we mentioned, there could be developments with the uh, Medicaid DISH cuts potentially between the time of this recording and when the episode gets posted, and we can include links to our news coverage as events warrant. Uh, thanks, all. We'll be back in a moment. In 2022, I shared an interview with Rodrigo hang Leitinen, Executive Director of the National Center for Transgender Equality. We talked about how small paperwork changes can make a big difference for a transgender patient, no matter what type of healthcare they're seeking. That episode earned our podcast an award, but much more importantly, it got people in the industry talking. So today, Heng Leitonen is back discussing why mental health care for transgender children can help them grow into healthier adults. There is some well-documented confusion and misinformation about what transition-related care looks like for young people. So if you want to learn more about the specifics there, I'll include some additional resources in the show notes. There is a detailed standards of care developed by all the leading medical institutions like American Medical Association that outline what is age-appropriate treatment for a transgender child or even for a child who's questioning and very, very early in their process where it's not really sure if they're trans or not. So those guidelines are quite complicated for good reason, because they're age appropriate. It's not just one size fits all. Instead, it's it's staggered by age in different situations. But generally speaking, there's there's a few kind of things we're usually talking about. First of all, when a child first expresses that they're transgender or even that they might be, 
there's mental health screening and a lot of work with a therapist or a counselor that has nothing to do with um, other physical medicine, you could say, for lack of a better term. And that's really where it stays for most young trans people. So most young trans patients actually don't undergo medical care, really. They change their name, they change their haircut, they change their style of dress, and that's really all it is. But for that smaller subset of trans youth who do go through a bigger process as younger patients, they see a doctor and there's still mental health screening and all that, and then they might be prescribed puberty blockers or these medications that really just allow you to hit the pause button on puberty. These are medications that are used for other medical situations as well. So for example, puberty blockers have been widely used when a non-transgender child is going through puberty too early and it's a medical concern. They're prescribed this medication to, again, just hit the pause button. So this is medication that's been long studied and, and long researched and perfectly safe. And then, you know, lastly, for an even smaller subset, of trans teenagers, they may go after being on puberty blocking medication for a little while, they may take hormone replacement therapy or HRT. But that's, again, that's kind of the spectrum usually of what we're talking about. Some trans teenagers get surgery, but it's pretty rare. For the most part, when we're talking about transition-related healthcare for youth, we're talking about puberty delaying medication. That's far and away the most common and maybe hormone replacement therapy. But again, all of it is widely researched. All of it has detailed standards of care. And all of it really, really at the end of the day depends on the patient and the doctor. What power do healthcare organizations or practitioners have to improve the experience of young people who are transgender? Healthcare providers absolutely have a lot of power in these situations. You know, one of the things that's unique about any kind of transgender topic, including transition-related healthcare, is that it feels new to most people. Now, in truth, transgender people have always been here all throughout history and all throughout the globe. There are many, many documented cases of people who today would be described as transgender. We didn't use that language then, language evolves, but absolutely there is evidence that we've always been here. But there were many decades, a long, long time in at least the U.S. where coming out as transgender was highly stigmatized. So there were people who were transgender but had to hide in the closet and no one knew that they were transgender. The reason I bring all that up is because it means that Today, in the 2020s, we're at this point where now people are coming out as transgender, which is fantastic. And there's what feels like, to non-transgender people, it can feel like an explosion of all of a sudden there's all these transgender people around. And it can feel kind of overwhelming and new. So what that means is that most people, including any given parent or family member who might come into a doctor's office with a trans or questioning child, most people don't actually have their minds made up on this topic at all. And most people are not familiar with it and they don't really know what to make of it. 
you as a medical provider are in a position of authority. You're more influential than ever when it comes to transition-related care or any kind of healthcare for a young trans child because you are perceived as the authority figure and the person who knows what's going on and you're trusted to have the child's best interest at heart at the end of the day. Especially when it comes to young trans patient, you as the medical provider, anyone in an institutional setting, your words will carry even more weight than usual. And they may be even more persuasive than you may realize, because this is an area where we see all the time parents are really looking to the doctor to say, tell me what I'm supposed to do here. Now, if you as the doctor feel like you don't know the answers either, that's okay. It just means that's an opportunity to learn more. In preparation for this interview, you had sent me some studies, which I'll link in the show notes, uh, regarding mental health for transgender youth and the effects down the line, which I think if you're looking at cost of care will be of interest. Can you talk about that research? Sure. There is a huge correlation between someone's ability to access transition-related care and just in general be affirmed by the people around them to better mental health outcomes. You know, so on the negative side, study after study has consistently shown that trans youth who are rejected by the people they love, rejected in their homes, in their families, by their churches, experience worse mental health outcomes. And that similarly, trans youth who are turned away from healthcare or, you know, need transition-related healthcare and can't get it experience worse mental health outcomes. So we see time and time again, there is such clear consensus in the research that rejection in general and specifically healthcare rejection and inability to get treatment means often higher rates of suicidal ideation higher likelihood of unfortunately succumbing to addiction and addictive behavior, substance abuse, and people not finishing school, you know, dropping out or really, frankly, being pushed out. Now, on the positive side, on the flip side of that is also true, meaning as transgender youth are supported by their families and more specifically are able to access transition-related care that's recommended by their doctor, they have such better outcomes. They report such higher rates of happiness in the moment, you know, as, as while they're still young, but also into adulthood. They're more likely to graduate on time and stay in school, more likely to have thriving careers and be physically healthier, you know not engage in substance abuse, and just be healthier in all these other traditional demarcating points um, and be so clearly much more likely to thrive. And that might seem obvious, but it's really important to know that it that it has been objectively measured and researched and studied. Because again, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And it's important for people to know that this has been examined and these hypothetical threats of more suicidal ideation are not hypothetical, they're real, but also the positive, the opposite is true, that we really see it bear out. It's not in the data that when people are supported and able to get treatment, they live a better life. That isn't just some naive assumption. It has borne out in the research. And that ability to access transition-related care earlier on when it's right for the individual patient has such a positive effect 
that kids even thrive even when we're in this otherwise hostile environment where state legislatures are raining down on us trans people all the time and especially targeting trans youth. I mean, the protective effect of the people in your life having your back and your doctors getting you the healthcare that you need, that protective effect is so strong that it really endures into adulthood. I'm seeing so many parallels with other interviews I've done about people who are not transgender. I listened yesterday to an episode that I had done recently about higher weight patients. And it's it's the same thing. It's that trust. And it's the, I went in for something that had nothing to do with my weight. And that's all that they wanted to talk to me about. It's so true. I mean, at the end of the day, this is really just about being human and going, okay, what, what is actually relevant in this moment? What is the, what is this patient actually need right now? And that, that's what you focus on, you know, in a way, transgender healthcare, quote unquote, is, is not that different. <laughs> it's for most trans people. It's really about that. We want the fact that we're trans to be in the background and appropriately. So, so if we have, let's say carpal tunnel syndrome or whatever it is, we can get treatment for it like anyone else. And yes, of course we want doctors to recognize when being transgender is relevant. And in the case of transition related care, it is, you know, the healthcare that's about you actually transitioning, it's relevant. And so doctors should be trained to handle that appropriately. But a lot of times we are just a patient who happens to be trans. We're not really there because of our, our gender identity. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming back on the podcast. Um, I always enjoy talking with you and learning from you, uh, Rodrigo Hang-Layton. And thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This was fantastic. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Additional writing and research are by Nick Hutt, Sean Stack, and the HFMA editorial team. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is director of content. Our president and CEO is Ann Jordan. Blah, blah, blah. Okay.